Comment and Review by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, November 2009. Comment and Review by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Published in the Forerunner, Volume 2, Number 6. The New Machiavelli by H. G. Wells. Duffield and Company, New York. $1.35 net. In times past, when an unusual woman showed marked capacity in some line of human service, all were quick to see and point out with scorn or pity the feminine limitations of her work. It was done like a woman, they said. It was womanish. It was to be grudgingly measured as good for a woman, if good at all. Now we are beginning to use something of the opposite point of view in regard to men's achievements, and we need it constantly in considering the work of Mr. H. G. Wells. The masculine limitations of this author are marked and persistent. He sees life wholly from the side of sex, his sex, and when, in this last book, he frankly announces himself feminist, it is only sex in women which he sees, and for which he demands social recognition. Of course, it is difficult for a man to overcome this bias, more so than for a woman, Yet many great men have been able to do it. Mr. Wells has not. Note this record of masculine emotion and conduct, its morbid excesses blasting an otherwise valuable life, indeed, several of them, yet discussed with naive solemnity, as if it was all in the necessary order of nature. The book tells of a boy, somewhat unfortunate in birth and breeding, as most of us are, growing up to keen-minded speculation on human life, its pressing needs and problems. Yet in all this wide sociological interest, totally oblivious to such a predominating social question as the woman's movement. The girl he passes in the street who stirs his boyish sensations, the woman of his frankly told experiences, the woman he marries. I suppose it was because I had so great a need of such help as her whiteness proffered, he says. I wanted a woman to save me, and the next one with whom he overwhelmingly falls in love. These are real to him, and one other, mercilessly caricatured. These impress him, but the change in social relation of thousands does not impress him. The work is powerful and clear. The view of the present confusion of methods, especially in the rearing of young people, is vividly appealing, but the criticisms of political life show a strange lack of adjustment in eyes that see so far. To be in the immediate workings of the political department of the social body must necessarily be confusing. The social philosopher can see an ordered procession of changes for centuries ahead, but the politician must introduce those changes step by step, with some heat. The worst thing about this book is the spirit of personal enmity it reveals, the Dantesque consigning of enemies to the hell of the wickedly clever characterization. Little London, where everybody who is anybody knows everybody else, buzzed madly over the book. This is pitiful work. If there was no personal animus in this bitter ridicule, it shows sheer malice. If there was a personal ground, it implicates the author with his creation most painfully. Mr. Wells is easily among the first of those who are kindled with the social consciousness and able to spread the light and heat of it to others. His work is extremely able, though irregular, and with his unrivaled imagination, wide scientific knowledge, and highly developed art, he ought to be one of the prime movers of the world today. 
But here enter the disabilities of sex. Not only, as in this tale, is a man's political life ruined by open scandal, but the artist, scientist, and publicist is cut off from highest usefulness by this constant limitation. In a publication whose popularity proves its knowledge of the prevailing tastes of the man in the street, has been running a story most pleasing and absorbing to that man. With passionate eagerness he read it from week to week, discussed it with his friends, commented sagely on its florid philosophy. This story is The Grain of Dust by the late David Graham Phillips. It is a man's story, utterly, masculine from start to finish, with women only thrown in as a background. The vain and shallow fiancé, the vain and shallow sister, the vain and shallow girl who served as a grain of dust to stop the action of the hero's works. Not that she had power even to do that. The power was all in him. It isn't the woman who makes a fool of the man, said Norman. It's the man who makes a fool of himself. The most amusing feature of the book is this, the ultra-male hero, vain beyond belief, brutally self-confident, unprincipled as a fish, indifferent to any interests but his own, self-indulgent to a degree which would have made him a shameful wreck in five years had not the author endowed him with a magic immunity to all excesses, and first, last, and always, the ceaseless mouthpiece of an egotism unmeasured and unashamed. This man dwells continually on the vanity and egotism of women. Because a girl, the effect of whose marvelous ever-changing beauty forms the subject matter of the story, thinks she is beautiful, therefore she is a monument of the egotism of her sex. Because another girl, whom this lovable hero was about to marry for her beauty, money, and position, and who was somewhat in love with him, really expected him to love her, really resented his loving another woman while relentlessly going on to marry her for business purposes, and really recognized in herself the beauty, wealth, and position he was marrying her for. She was another monument of feminine egotism. It would seem on the face of it that if one wished to write a book to establish the utter incapacity, selfishness, and vanity of women, one would choose a type of that sort and surround her with the effective contrast of useful, noble, modest, and unselfish men. Such a woman, so exhibited, should exert her arts in vain upon these noble characters. In this story, however, we have for our heroine a quiet, lovely girl, efficient and devoted as a daughter, self-supporting and self-respecting under long temptation, finally choosing to marry her chief pursuer, even without love, preferring his wealth and professed devotion to long poverty and possible failure and shame, a deed at worst no more to be condemned than his earlier attempt. His wealth, by the way, was non-existent when he married her. He deliberately deceived her in this, and his love vanished on the morning after. Thereafter he treats her as an upper servant whose only business in life is to minister to his personal comfort, whose only claim on him was for support, and in her new efforts to please him, forgetting that she had done the work of a house for years and cared tenderly for an absent-minded father, while at the same time earning her living at distasteful labor, he is at great pains to show her pitifully inefficient and never more than moderately successful. And we can never ask the author if this book was really meant as a satire on men. The Players of London, written by Louise Beecher Chancellor, decorated by Harry B. Matthews. 
published by B.W. Dodge Company, New York, 1909. This is not a new book in the strict publisher's sense, but it is an extremely attractive one, with its binding of lilac and gold, its profuse inner trimmings of lilac, and vivid illuminations in black and white. The story is a simple one, of the days of good Queen Bess, with no less a person for the hero than Master William Shakespeare, and for the heroine the first woman to appear on the English stage. It does seem strange indeed for Romeo and Juliet to be written with the expectation of some lads taking the part of that passionate young heroine. But this appears to be what Shakespeare did. How he was misled in the manner, for what noble purpose, and to what poor end, is shown in this old world tale. End of Comment and Review by Charlotte Perkins Gilman